Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number five on the War of the Jewels. And tonight we are working in the final section of the Grey Annals, the first big chunk at the beginning of the War of the Jewels book. Um, I don't know if we'll finish it all the way, but we might we might we might get within shouting distance of the end. We'll see. Uh, <clears throat> we'll see how things go. In the meantime, I wanted to give just a couple reminders of some exciting things going on around the Signum world these days. First of all, we just had Sunshine Moot last weekend, which was delightful. I see several people here whom I got to hang out with just a couple days ago, which was great fun. And uh, we're going to be having another moot soon, so I wanted to draw everybody's attention to that. Down in Texas, we're going down to San Antonio, and we're going to uh, have tax moot on the 15th of April. So it's tax moot, technically, but um, <clears throat> anyway, that, that, that should be a lot of fun. So San Antonio on the 15th of April, um, and uh, hope uh, some of you can make it uh, and join us down there. Always good to reconnect with folks down in Texas. Uh, we've been um, doing text moot. This will be, I think, our fifth text moot. <clears throat> it's called, it's, it's, it's pronounced San Antonio, you think, Arthur? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. I, I, I'll learn. I'll see. These are some of the things that I, that I, uh, uh, that I, that I learn when I travel. We'll see. Um, but in any case, uh, so we've got text moot in April and then maple moot on the 20th of May um, in Toronto, Ontario. So we're going up to Canada. Uh, excited about that. Uh, be coming out to Toronto. I've never been to Toronto before. I've uh, been to Canada a number of times. It's one of the things that I enjoy most, actually. It's one of the fun perks about living up here in New Hampshire is that it's not so far to uh, be able to pop up to Canada. Um, I've spent a bunch of time out in Prince Edward Island. I've uh, been up to uh, Montreal and Quebec City a couple times. So I've been uh, to Ottawa. I've really enjoyed spending some time out here in Canada, but I've never been to Toronto. So um, very, uh, uh, very excited about that. Oh, hello from the other side of Canada. Are you uh, are you out in uh, Vancouver, Yarrow, or uh, somewhere well out there? Um, I did visit Vancouver briefly this past summer, very briefly. It was just a kind of passing through thing. Vancouver Island. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, so really looking forward to Maple Moot. That's going to be happening in May. Uh, so we've got a bunch of exciting things coming up. And um, as I mentioned last night, we have recently confirmed uh, that we are definitely coming at last to the Pacific Northwest. Cascade Moot in Portland is going to be happening uh, in September this coming year. Uh, it's the one right near Bilbo's birthday. So we're going to be holding that on the 23rd of September in Portland. So that should be, uh, uh, that should be, that should be very cool. Um, so Yarrow, it's not all the way to Vancouver. It's a little, but it's not too far. It's, it'll be closer to you than the Toronto one. I know. Um, but, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, so, uh, we will, um, I'm looking forward to uh, more fun events as we uh, continue to uh, to to move about. Uh, so we will um, uh, we will see what we can do as we move forward in, in continuing to schedule more moots. It is always so much fun to be able to get together for the day or for more than one day uh, in many cases, uh, and um, be able to 
you know, kind of find our tribe and hang out with like-minded people and talk about this stuff that we love for a day. Um, it is always a wonderful refreshment. Um, the other thing I wanted to draw your attention to is some exciting stuff that's going on at the Signum University Press uh, these days. Um, very excitingly, we just have officially published our first book. Um, that is the first complete book. There are, there are a number of works which have been in serial release, as like my book, which is uh, still under production. It may shock you to hear that my book is probably going to take longer than most of the other books that are being published by us right now, but that's okay. Um, and uh, <clears throat> anyway... Um, but um, but we have a complete book out for sale. Um, it is uh, available for pre-order right now in ebook form. Uh, this is um, this is Verlin Flieger's new book, A Waiter Made of Glass. It is a collection of stories and poems from Verlin Flieger. And from those of you who don't know Verlin Flieger, Verlin Flieger is um, just she is I've called her the matriarch of Tolkien studies. Um, she is one of the uh, one of the earliest, most important, most influential uh, 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 Tolkien scholars in the world. Um, she was, I believe, the first person ever to get her PhD writing a dissertation on Tolkien, um, and she has been uh, she has been publishing. She's been writing. She's been editing. Uh, many of you will have read some of the Tolkien works that she has made available and edited. Like, for instance, very relevant to our discussion tonight. Um, uh, she is the one who published uh, Tolkien's Kulervo, uh, which is the earliest version. That's the, 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 the story that Tolkien wrote in his very early days, in his early 20s, um, when he was still... That story is the one where he is transitioning from writing Kalevala fan fiction to writing the Children of Horin, basically. Um, that is the, the transition moment. Um... So, um, anyway, uh, that is, um, uh, yeah, she is, oh yeah, uh, Jen says, Verlin is the boss, according to, 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 to many. Oh man. Um, she is, she is, uh, she's just a wonderful, generous, warm person who is incredibly smart and tough as nails and calls things like she sees them. Um, I have tremendous respect for Verlin, Verlin Flieger. Anyway, I'm, we're greatly honored at the Signum University Press uh, to have the first book that we are ready fully to release in published form uh, be her next book. Um, so that is very exciting. The ebook is what is available uh, for pre-order right now. The audiobook and the paperback book uh, will be available soon. Um, so uh, I... Um, I hope that uh, you are able to check that out. You can find it on blackberry.signumuniversity.org, which is our um, our sort of in-house uh, uh, ordering system. It's the same system. If you've used, if you've uh, taken one of our space modules, you would you will have used it for that. Um, that's also where you can subscribe and uh, become a member of an author circle for the press and things like that. Uh, so you can purchase Verlin's book there, or you can. Um, uh, you can also purchase, it's also available on other places like Amazon and stuff like that. So anyway, I encourage you to look into that because it is a, it is a, it, it is a very moving and powerful book in a lot of ways. Um, I also wanted to highlight 
another really fun project that we're doing at the press, and that is Mike Drought's Exploring Beowulf. Exploring Beowulf is a series of audio. It's not exactly a podcast. It's like a, a, a series of audio lectures and commentaries. Mike Drought going through the Beowulf poem line by line. Um, and it is uh, a remarkable collection of a long career of learning of, uh, and study of, of the Beowulf poem. Um, it is just if you've you know, if you've ever thought about digging deep into Beowulf and, and, and wanting to understand more this poem, which is just one of the absolute cornerstones of Tolkien's world, um, I can't recommend enough uh, Mike Drought's Exploring Beowulf. Um, so anyway, so that is um, uh, that is something that it's it's, uh, uh, you know, it's it's available now. Um, he's been releasing it now. It's in its second month, I think. Um but um, anyhow, uh, definitely wanted to recommend that too. All right, let us move into the latter stages. So we've been we were looking up through about the near Nithornoidiad um, last time, um, but um, let's let's move a bit further. Actually, we didn't quite get to the near Nith, did we? That's okay. In this year, it hath been said, and it, sorry, it hath been thought changed to said, Baron and Luthien returned to the world for a while, for Luthien had won this doom from Manwe, that Baron might return to live again, and she with him, but only so that she too there, thereafter should be mortal as he, and should soon die indeed, and lose the world, and depart from the numbers of the Eldaliae forever. This doom she chose, and they appeared again unlooked for in Doriath, and those that saw them were both glad and fearful. But Luthien went to Menegroth, and healed the winter of Thingol with the touch of her hand. Yet Melian looked in her eyes, and read the doom that was written there, and turned away. For she knew that a parting beyond the end of the world had come between them, and no grief of loss hath been heavier than the grief of the heart of Melian Maya in that hour, unless only it were the grief of Elrond and Arwen. But Luthien and Baron passed then out of the knowledge of elves and men, and dwelt a while alone by the green waters of Osirian, in that land which the Eldar named therefore Gwerth Iguinar, the land of the dead le that live. Thereafter, Baron, son of Barahir, spoke not again with any mortal man. Okay, so, um, this is a passage. It's another one of those passages that should be familiar. Most of this is in... Uh, the published Silmarillion, though there's a passage that probably jumped out to you that isn't in the published Silmarillion, right? Um, but um, first, because I can rarely restrain myself from drawing attention to his crossouts, which are my favorite thing, as I said last week, notice the change there in that first line. It hath been thought. Uh, in this year it hath been thought, Baron and Luthien returned to the world. And he changed that to, in this year it hath been said, Baron and Luthien returned to the world. Do you see the difference there? I think it's an interesting difference. It, it, hardly proof on its own. Um, but I think the suggestion there is that we see Tolkien paying attention or making sure that what he is writing is consistent with the textual framework that he is establishing for the annals, right? If he just says, in this year it hath been thought, Baron and Luthien returned to the world for a while. Well, thought who who thought it? 
um, how does he know that somebody thought that, right? Um, if you say it hath been thought, then you're speaking as an omniscient narrator, right? Possibly a modern omniscient narrator, right? But if you say, in this year it hath been said, you are reporting a tradition, possibly a written tradition, before you, or maybe you're writing it down for the first time. But um, but again, that that sense of a true history, right? That sense of recording, documenting, you know, that which came before and that which was said before, you know, by other people um, seems to me a really important element uh, that we see there. Um, again, that this one cross out wouldn't prove it, but it fits with what we've seen already. Um, now, remember, he kind of um, has set aside by this point the purely Sindar frame. We, you know, we talked about that um, once he got past the um, uh, the landing of the Noldor. Uh, he shifted back, and now we've been not fully in Quentum mode, but something more like Quentum mode. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. In that context, I think that in this paragraph, we are remembering. It sounds like Tolkien is remembering. Like for a moment, we're shifting back to within that mythic framework that we were looking at at the beginning of the Grey Annals. When the Grey Annals were back, when the Grey Annals were were really gray, right? Um, when that is to say, they were being associated explicitly with the Sindar. These are the records of the Sindar and their point of view and their history and their memories. Um, and I think we have a little uh, recollection of that here, not only because only the Sindar would know this story, right? I mean, there's a there are a lot of details here that seem to me peculiar to um, the Sindar experience. The healing the winter of Thingol with the touch of her hand, um, the 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 look exchanged between Melian and Luthien, um, you know, and the the perception of the the uh, the depth of her grief, Melian's grief in that moment, right? Um, these are all things that really kind of only the Sindar would know about, right? You really kind of need to have a Doriath uh, eyewitness in order to be able to tell these things. So if it's been said by anybody, you know, if this stuff has been said by anybody, it was clearly said, I think, by one of the Sindar. Um, but, um, uh, but more than that, this ties in, I think, with the mythic... I was going to say element, but that's not a strong enough word. With the mythic status, stature of um, uh, of the story, especially the story of Thingol and Melian that we got before. Um, yeah. Um, uh, uh, JJ, I'm going to read your comment in a second. Could you uh, post the line from the published Silmarillion? Uh, that you're thinking of. I'd love to compare them uh, in detail if I could. Thanks. Um, okay, anyway, um, 
yeah, mythic stuff, right? Remember the status of Thingol, breathing forth joy. Remember that, and Melian, the genius loci of all of Beleriand, and um, and the way that that whole, um, the way that those two were the center of their worldview in ways which. I found really transformative, even though we were mostly just reading passages that were in the published Silmarillion and have been there all along, right? Um, but this is like a closing of the loop on that, right? This is not quite the end of the myth. I mean, it's we're not at the death of Thingol and departure of Melian. We'll get there. Um, you know, that's definitely something that we will see, um, and we're not there yet. Uh, but this is, this is a, a, a clearly a pivotal moment. This is a, you know, what grief Melian the Maya, you know, Melian Maya experienced in that hour. It's really kind of a, I don't know, only relevant for like this sort of Sindar myth, right? Um, uh, sort of mythic understanding of Melian. Um, very little in this actually is sort of, I don't know what, sort of substantive for the history. I mean, like, you know, um, I mean, I guess we, some of this stuff we need to know. I don't want to downplay it too much. Um, but it does seem to me, um, uh, it does seem to me uh, critical that we, uh, that we get this return to Thingol and Melian, this reminder of the mythic status that they have in the context of the Sindar society and the impact that Baron and Luthien's return um, have there. Um, okay. Um, let's see. So, uh, JJ, okay. Um, no, so first of all, uh, and actually, hang on, JJ, is there is there a line that's directly parallel? I know that that phrase that you were talking about is in the in there. I'm trying to narrow in on that. Um, the quote that you gave is a long one, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to have time to piece out the a line to directly compare. Um, but um, anyway, uh, yeah, so Scott and uh, Yarrow both have just been mentioning the thing that I alluded to before, which is the the part that really jumps out that is not in the published Silmarillion. And that is no grief of loss hath been heavier than the grief of the heart of Melian Maya in that hour, unless only it were the grief of Elrond and Arwen. Yeah. No, that um that, that exactly, that's the eyebrow raiser. That is the most striking um, the most striking passage that ended up on the cutting room floor here, on Christopher's cutting room floor I mean um, now I um, I admit that again, I'm not even criticizing Christopher here at all like that he cut out that bit um, I think it makes a certain amount of sense, but um but it certainly is very striking. Um, notice how it is by glancing ahead. So first of all, it's no surprise that Tolkien himself would be thinking this, 
Because, of course, as we know, by definition, everything in this book, The War of the Jewels, was written after he'd finished writing The Lord of the Rings, uh, so that the grief of Elrond and Arwen would be very fresh in his mind um, when he's returning here. I mean, in fact, you could even say, and this is something that happens a lot, right? Um, one of the things that's fun about coming to understand better as well as we can. There's still some guesswork involved, and sometimes Christopher is only speculating as well, but nevertheless, as well as we can understand the chronological sequence in which Tolkien wrote stuff, it often really illuminates things that we might not have guessed. To use a small example, um, when you read Gollum in The Two Towers, right, you know, the story of Gollum and Frodo and Athelion and, and, you know, like the whole book four presence uh, of Gollum. It is, you know, in Slinker and Stinker and Shelob's Lair and everything else, right? Um, it is tempting to go back to The Hobbit, right? And think, like, how did he get from The Hobbit Gollum all the way up to this? Like, you know, to assume that The Hobbit Gollum is the the sort of literary ancestor, right? That that's obviously where he started, and then um, the Gollum that he the Gollum character that he developed uh, in the Two Towers is derived from that character, and it's kind of grown into the two the Two Towers character, and that's kind of true in one way, but there is another way in which um, it's act that it's actually backwards. Because, of course, the Gollum character that's in Chapter 5 of The Hobbit that almost all of us have on our shelves is not the Gollum that was, in fact, the predecessor of the Two Towers Gollum. It's the Gollum that he went back and rewrote after he wrote the Two Towers. And so, in fact, the Gollum that most of us are familiar with from The Hobbit is not the literary antecedent or ancestor of the Gollum in the Two Towers. The Gollum in the Two Towers is the basis for the Gollum in the Hobbit, in fact, right? So although it looks like that one came, you know, so this is just one of those interesting sort of facts of Tolkien's literary chronology, right? And I think that here we have a similar kind of situation where the winter of Thingol, um, beyond that, the significance of this moment. When he's writing this paragraph and he's thinking through what the return of Luthien and the choice of Luthien means, um, in large part, he has the grief of Elrond and Arwen is not just a late and distant echo of Luthien and Thingol. How he is thinking about, what he is saying about, and how he is describing the relationship between Luthien and Thingol is in its way actually derived from his thinking about Elrond and Arwen. The situation was already there, right? Arwen says, mine is the choice of Luthien. But as we've seen from earlier texts, he hasn't like, finished thinking that through, what that means, what that looked like, what was at stake there. Um, and so these later expressions, which are the, the expressions, in fact, as we can see, most of this paragraph does make it into the published Silmarillion. Um, these later expressions are based in part, at least, 
Like, yes, the story of Luthien and Thingol predates The Lord of the Rings. Of course it does. The concept of her returning predates, uh, and of, you know, uh, Thingol's grief predates the story of The Lord of the Rings. Of course it does, right? But he's just been thinking through it afresh and what it means and what comes from it by writing the story of Arwen and uh, Arwen and Aragorn and Arwen and, uh, and Arwen and Elrond here. Um, and so when he now returns to writing this story again, it's in once, of course, it's a surprise because it's not in the published Silmarillion, this reference to Elrond and Arwen, but on the other level, it's not a surprise at all. Of course he's thinking about that, right? Of course that's, um, that's not just a comparison that he has in his mind, but that I think is, is, is informing the whole thing. Um, so anyway, it's really interesting the way these things kind of come about. And sometimes uh, it is not intuitive, sort of which comes first and what stories inspire which, if you see what I mean. Um, even you think about um, the idea of the significance of the Luthien uh, and uh, the, the Baron and Luthien story, right? And the li this idea of, of the line of Baron and Luthien, right? Um, think about the, you know, like, um, you know, never shall that line... Uh, fail uh, in this world, right? Who is it? Is, is it Legolas who says that? Anyway, um, it's one of the elves talking about um, the descendants of Luthien, right? Think about Aragorn's own emphasis on that in his prose paraphrase at the end of singing uh, the Baron and Luthien song at Weathertop. Um, he too comments on how the world has been blessed down through the years by this union of Baron and Luthien um, and the significance of their descendants, the significance of the line that they began. Um, it was Legos. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, for is he not of the children of Luthien? Never shall that line fail, though the years may lengthen beyond count. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Um, but if you go back and you look in the Quentin Olderin, well... You know, the earlier stuff, the Way of Lathian, well, we don't get to the end in the Way of Lathian, obviously, um, but if, uh, you know, the, the Tale of Tenuvio, there's not the same emphasis on that, right? Um, it's only after he's told the story of their distant, distant, distant descendant, Aragorn and Arwen, right, um, that this sense of the sort of long-term effects of uh, the union of Baron and Luthien, that their line, that, that anybody should say what Layla said, right? Never shall that line fail, though the years may lengthen beyond count. Really? Okay. <clears throat> um, that's cool, but I don't think that that was something that was significant in Tolkien's mind and in Tolkien's stories. As important as that story's always been for him, Right, that that bit, that that element of it, I think was 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 pretty new um, later on. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
fan art, I think I agree with you there. It's another sign of how the close narrative style of The Lord of the Rings is being applied to the Silmarillion stories, which were told from such a faraway perspective. I agree. Um, moments like this, moments like, um, but Luthien went to Menegroth and healed the winter of Thingol with the touch of her hand and, and, the, and the, the, the look between her and Melian. These are not, this is not the way prior to the Lord of the Rings. This is not how these narratives tended to go, right? Um, this isn't the kind of like description of action. We're zooming in much closer uh, than was commonly the case. In the earlier text, again, go back to the 1937 Quenta, in The Lost Road, go back to the Quentin Older Inwa, uh, in uh, The Shaping of Middle-Earth, go back to the Book of Lost Tales. Um, it's not that we get no details, it's not that we get no dialogue or anything like that, but I agree. I do think that we are seeing are seeing evidence of his preference for this, uh, uh, this, this kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Fanara says, I wonder if this writing, if writing this gave Tolkien a sense of completion. He's effectively bookended the story of the half-elven. Yeah, well, I mean, Fanaro, for the matter of that, think about how the idea of the half-elven has developed, right? Think about how it's one of the things... Elrond is such a fascinating character. Um, if you do, like, a character study of Elrond... Uh, through the history of the Legendarium. He's such a fascinating character because, on the one hand, from the earliest days, Elrond is a really important character, right? I mean, he's there almost from the beginning. Um, he's a really important character, has a, uh, a really important place in the stories from the Book of Lost Tales. And that place, by the way, is the one who lives on, the one who transitions, the one who keeps alive the memories of the old days, into the days that come afterwards. He's always like the last elf lord left behind, basically, um, after all the events of the Elder Days go forward. Um, but then he, you know, there are other things and other, but like, so despite the fact that he's really important, like, what does he do? Who is he? You know, what's his character like? What actually, what does he actually, apart from like, keep living, what does he actually do, right? What is his role? How is he connected? Um, he's connected genealogically with like everybody, right? But how is he connected to their stories, right? How does this all uh, come in? So um, I do think, yeah, that we, um, uh, we do see him kind of um, situating. Um, bookending, I think, is a, is a, a perfectly apt kind of uh, um, uh, kind of metaphor here. Yeah. Um, anyhow, okay. Um, all right, I think I'm good. Oh, wait, hang on, JJ. Never got back to your other point. Hang on, let me get back to it. Uh, scroll up for it now. Okay, okay. Um, great, okay. Uh, JJ's point uh, which was about Luthien's loss. So in our in the published Silmarillion, um, the line says, she would become mortal and subject to a second death, even as he, and ere long she would leave the world forever and her beauty become only a memory and song. And JJ's point was, in the published Silmarillion, the emphasis seems to be on everybody's loss of Luthien, 
right? That, uh, that she's the thing being lost. And of course, J.J. had also recall the very end of the story, right? So they have lost her whom they most loved, right? I mean, there's very much an emphasis on the loss of her. But J.J.'s observation was that here in this, um, in this passage, there is more of an emphasis on what she loses. Um, uh, yeah, there it is. Um, but only so that she too thereafter should be mortal as he and should soon die indeed and lose the world and depart from the numbers of the Eldalier forever. Um, she should lose the world. The emphasis is not just on she's going to go and we're all losing her, right? The, we, the Eldar, who are like writing down this document and, uh, you know, concerning the ones doing the saying, right? The, the it hath been said stuff. Um, it's not just that the Eldar are losing her. It's that she is losing the world. And I agree. I do think that the way that that's framed here in this sentence is stronger than we get in the published Silmarillion. Um, and... I have to say, this seems to me like a very, I think it's also part of Tolkien, as we saw in that very first cross out in the first line, um, I think that this is Tolkien being mindful of who's writing the text, right, of the fictional textual frame of the story. Um, because it's a very elvish thing to say. She should soon die indeed and lose the world. I'm not saying the Numenorians wouldn't agree that she was losing the world. Um, but, I mean, especially in the published Silmarillion, I don't think, I'm not sure Luthien would necessarily agree. Um, uh, but uh, in any case, I, I, I do agree that it's it's more prominent there, and that's an interesting thing. Um, you know, what does that add up to? Does it suggest that there is a, a still sort of a shift going on in Tolkien's own thinking about sort of the relationship between mortals in the world, or Luthien specifically, post-choice and the world, um, or uh, <clears throat> you know, or or um, uh, or something else? But, um, yeah, or is it Christopher, right? I mean, is by, you know, altering this line, you know, using a different version of this line, is Christopher sort of spinning it, you know, nudging it in a particular direction? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, okay. In a low-key way, this passage surprised me more, I, like as much as any other passages in the Grey Annals surprised me. And in that very day, the third hour of the morning, the, at the third hour of morning, lo, at last, this is the near knife now, at last the trumpets of Maedros were heard coming up from the east, and the banners of the sons of Feanor assailed the enemy in the rear. It has been said that even then the Eldar might have won the day, had all their hosts proved faithful, for the orcs wavered, and their onslaught was stayed, and already some were turning to flight. 
But even as the vanguard of Maedros came upon the orcs, Morgoth loosed his last strength, and Angband was emptied. There came wolves and wolf riders, and there came Balrogs a thousand, and there came worms and drakes, and Glaurung father of dragons. And the strength and terror of the great worm were now grown great indeed, and elves and men withered before him, and he came between the hosts of Maedros and Fingon and swept them apart. Um, the very small detail that blew my mind was Balrogs a thousand. Now, on the one hand, that's not wholly strange in that there were Balrogs a thousand before. Um, you want to see large quantities of Balrogs? Go read the Book of Lost Tales version of the Fall of Gondolin, and you will have as many Balrogs as you could possibly want. I forget the number. How many Balrogs does Tuor alone slay in the battle, you know, in the Fall of Gondolin? A lot, right? A whole bunch. Um, like double digits, I believe. Uh, like maybe a couple dozen Balrogs. Uh, Tuor single-handedly kills during the course of the battle. Um, he's keeping like a Balrog score. Um, but uh, anyway, there's a whole lot of Balrogs. And so it's, it's, it's very clear that there comes a point, um, and we were even looking at this, as I recall, in Morgoth's Ring, there comes a point where he actively decides, okay, there aren't that many Balrogs. There's only a handful of Balrogs. Maybe there's seven Balrogs or nine Balrogs or something like that. Um, and, um, yeah, so uh, so he makes that decision. And later on, we see that... So th that means that not only... It's, it's not a mere reduction of the number of Balrogs. It is a reduction of the number of Balrogs uh, because it's an increase of the stature of each individual Balrog, right? Um, they become a much bigger deal. What blows my mind about this, therefore, is that we're still doing a thousand Balrogs after he wrote the Bridge of Casa Doom. That's what blows my mind. Um, I, I'd have said, uh, you know, this passage notwithstanding, I would have thought that surely one of the things that, even if it didn't initiate the change in the Balrog concept, certainly must have cemented it, was the Gandalf's fight on the Bridge of Khazad Doom, that surely by then he had firmly decided, okay, Balrogs are not cannon fodder, ever. Right? Balrogs shall never be cannon fodder. Um, they shall be a huge epic deal because if they're not, then Gandalf's fight and sacrifice becomes not a huge epic deal. Um, and but here we are post-Lord of the Rings, with a thousand Balrogs spilling out into the near Nithar Um 
and um yeah so i don't even know what to say <laughs> i don't even know what to say about it it's um is it maybe yeah and gorfindel's sacrifice and ecthelion yeah now ecthelion ecthelion is um um uh, He at least, it was Gothmog himself, right? And remember that when that was written, uh, that is the extremely metal death of Ecthelion. Ecthelion's death uh, in his defeat of Gothmog, in his, uh, his killing of Gothmog, is without question the most metal death scene in all of Tolkien's writings. I mean, there can't, there's not even, there can't even be a sensible debate on that subject, right? Um, if... You don't know what I'm talking about? Go find the Book of Lost Tales version of the Fall of Gondolin. It's at the beginning of the recent Fall of Gondolin book. If you can't find it elsewhere, it's in Book of Lost Tales Volume 2 if you want to find it there. And look it up, because I can't even do justice to it. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, don't forget that when that was written in the Book of Lost Tales, um, Gothmog was still the son of Melkor. Okay, this was when the Valar were still having babies, and Gothmog was the son of Melkor. So, killing the son of Melkor single-handedly, huge deal. Okay, huge. To, even when there were, even when there were, um, uh, you know, thousands of Balrogs, Gothmog was still a huge, huge deal. Uh, so, Ecthelion's feat was still enormous. Um, no, uh, Ungoliant is not his mother. Um, uh, the ogre witch. It's it, it, it's a character he invented to be Gothmog's mom. And he's like, you know, so she was like Melkor's baby mama. And she, she'd vanished immediately after that. Um, so, um... Because she was not like Melkor's mate, like they didn't like rule together or anything like that. She really just was, um, she really just was uh, a baby mama. But um, yeah, yeah, um, yes, yes, J- uh, uh, Jocelyn, I am saying a metal. Uh, uh, yes, the, the death of of Ecthelion was extremely metal, um, uh, to use the idiom of. Uh, slightly younger generation than myself. Uh, anyway, okay. So, point merely is, I don't know what to do with this. Don't know what to do with this. Um, why there are a thousand Balrogs? I can't imagine that he is actually um, that that Tolkien is actually reverting to the old. Let's make Balrogs basically heavy foot soldiers um, concept. Don't think so. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, all I can think of, honestly, like my best reading of this passage, which no, I'm going to warn you in advance, it's not very good. My best reading of this passage is that he's getting so carried away into, in this sentence, right, uh, describing the last strength of Morgoth and the emptying of Angband that he's kind of reverting to the idea of, you know, a whole army of Balrogs in trying to describe the most intimidating 
force that he can imagine going coming across the landscape um and that it's in that way a kind of mistake right that he kind of you know lapses into thinking this way you know imagining a you know a phalanx of a thousand balrogs which you know would be impressive um but anyway i i i can't think that he is in some kind of stable way reverting to the old idea i mean maybe we'll see something else and that'll prove me wrong um but i did not remember that reference this is one of the things that i love um about teaching this book uh, these books together, going through the history of Middle-earth together, is that I've, I've read them before, uh, but I miss stuff, right? When I'm not going through carefully and teaching through with you guys, I miss stuff. Um, and I keep coming across these passages, and I'm like, was that there the whole time? Holy cow. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. But um, interesting. Uh, uh, Tirathon suggests, no, it's not Tolkien. It's an out-of-control Noldor who's writing this. So our, our, our narrator, our elf narrator, who's writing this down, is just exaggerating. But see, I can't even think that an elf, if, like, if there are seven Balrogs, right? If there were only ever seven Balrogs, I don't even think that an elf narrator would... Like, that's not how you'd exaggerate. You know, like, that's not the thing you'd... If there were only ever seven, they knew there were only ever seven... Um, it wouldn't even make sense to exaggerate in that way. I mean, it, w it would be like saying, you know, uh, Frodo and Sam describing it and saying like, oh, you know, the, the Nazgul were pursuing, uh, pursuing us to the, to the fort of Bruinen. Uh, there were like 500 of them coming up behind us that nobody's going to do that. Like that. It's not the kind of exaggeration. I mean, it's one thing if you're being attacked by, an army of orcs, right? Like numbering in the hundreds, maybe, or thousands, and instead you describe them as numbering in the ten thousands or even in the hundred thousands, um, when there are only single thousands of them. That's a kind of exact, you know, there were a lot of them, but it was like there were ten times as many as that number, right? That's what it felt like. That makes sense, but if you know, you know, there are seven Balrogs, and each one of them is a big boss, right? and they're charging on the field, you would not adequately... Con it, it's not even a sensible exaggeration to say, there were a thousand of them. I don't know. Um, but um, exactly. They would exaggerate the strength of the Balrogs, not their number. Exactly. Exactly. Um, if they described like, and then the Balrogs came running across the field, and, and with each stroke of their sword, they slew, you know, 50 elves. Like, that's the kind of exaggeration that would convey the experience, right? Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> they're valiant Balrogs, right? I see. So seven Balrogs, and if you translate into Middle-earth terms, it's like a thousand. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. But anyway, I, yeah, it's possible that he's still legitimately not sure, Jen. I, I, it's possible. It's possible, but it's just, can you imagine him going back and deciding that Gandalf's opponent on the bridge of Casa Doom is just, you know, one of a thousand foot soldiers that came running out of, uh, of, of Angband on this day? I think that's, I don't know, takes a lot of believing, 
takes a lot of believing. Um, but, uh, okay. Anyway. Um, I don't think it's the only thing I wanted to talk about in, the, in this passage, but it's the biggest one. Um, notice also, yeah, the other thing I wanted to emphasize. Um, notice how much of a big deal Glaurung, father of dragons, is. Right. Um, even in the sentence in which he is imagining a thousand Balrogs, it's Glaurung, father of dragons, who is in the place of honor. And he is the one who gets the second sentence to follow up. And the strength and terror of the great worm were now grown great indeed. And elves and men withered before him. And he came between the hosts of Midros and Fingon and swept them apart. The thousand Balrogs barely get an assist, right? I mean, you know, the, the thousand Balrogs are like, like wallflowers here in this fight compared to Glaurung, the father of dragons, right? They're mere spectators, um, purely decorative <laughs> in comparison. Um, and again, whatever it is that he's doing with Balrogs here... Um, Glaurung is being made a very, very big deal of uh, compared with them. Um, okay, that was the other thing I wanted to emphasize. Let's talk about Turgon. It's Turgon. He is an interesting story. Um, look at what happens. So this is the um, last words of Hurin and Turgon on the battlefield at the end of the near knife. Lots of crossing out. Lots of crossing out. Okay. Yet a while it must stand, that is Gondolin, said Hurin, for out of Gondolin changed to, yet if it stands but a little while, said Hurin, changed to, Yet if it stands but a little while, said Huor, then out of Gondolin later... No, no, no. This is Huor speaking. It needs to be more personal. Change to... Yet if it stands but a little while, said Huor, then out of thy house shall come the hope of elves and men. This I say to thee, Lord, with the eyes of death, though here we part forever, and I shall never look on thy white walls. From thee and me shall a new star arise. Farewell. That prophecy, the new star arising, the prophecy of the birth of Eärendil and the end of the war emerges improbably. I say improbably because the involvement of Huor is an afterthought here, right? Twi this was just going to be a conversation between Hurin and Turgon, right? Uh, and twice he crosses out Hurin. And f before he finally puts this into Huor's mouth. And remember also that he wrote, he sent Hurin to Gondolin to meet Turgon, you know, uh, well, in through the gates at first, flown in by the eagles thereafter. We looked at that last time. Um, he was sending Hurin in to meet Turgon. And remember, Huor there was only an afterthought, too. It was going to be Hurin and that other dude, um, the. Was it Handir, one of the the the, you know, one of his cousins over there um, among the Haladin, 
And then he gets crossed out and changed to the like 13 year old who right? Um, yeah, Handir. It was Handir. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this tells us a couple things. First of all, because um, we, we, we can talk about the prophecy and Turgon um, specifically in a moment, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact, like, why is it, why is it that Hurin was the focus? Why was Hurin the, like, virtually solo, I mean, Handir was there, but Hurin was pretty much the solo protagonist of that first trip to Gondolin. And then Huor comes along with him. Um, you know, Huor has suffered to tag along at the age of 13. And so similarly, when Turgon is going to leave the battlefield and the men of Dor Loman are going to sacrifice themselves to cover his retreat, it was going to be just a Hurin and Turgon story until Huor asserts himself in Tolkien's imagination again, right? Good thing Huor is pretty stubborn and doesn't let himself get left out of the story. But we can see why, right? Or at least I think I see why. We see why because the story of Hurin, this is the story that Tolkien is really interested in. All of this stuff is just to set up the later story of Hurin and Hurin's wanderings. When Hurin is Hurin's going to be captured by Morgoth, and he's going to be put in his stone chair, and he's going to be cursed, and then he's going to be released, and then he's going to wander around after he was released, and all kinds of unpleasant things are going to happen to him. Them. That's the story that Tolkien has in mind. That's what he's building up to. Right? Christopher's warned us about this. We're going to get this later on. Um, the wanderings of Hurin as a kind of, um, I don't know what, appendix? A kind of uh, uh, add-on to the story of the children of Hurin? Right? The, 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 the story of the cursing of Hurin's family doesn't actually achieve closure until after Hurin's wanderings. And Hurin's wanderings in the published Silmarillion are brief, right? Hurin is very um, um, goal-oriented in the published Silmarillion, isn't he? Right? Uh, Morgoth lets him go. He wanders down in the vague direction of Gondolin, though he doesn't know exactly where it is. Shouts at the mountains, right? Shouts at Turgon, right, in the vague direction of the mountains, thus giving away what part of the continent Gondolin is in to Morgoth. Then he proceeds directly to Nargothrond, goes in there, kills Meme, takes the Nargothrond, or takes the Nargothrond, listen to me, takes the Nauglafring, um, as it was called originally, the Nauglamir, as it's called later, Bring, goes straight to Doriath, right, throws it down at Thingol's feet, um, looks in Melian's eyes, sees the truth, is sorry, apologizes, wanders off, uh, finds Morwen and dies. Right? That's that's all we get of the wanderings of Hurin. Um, as we're going to see, I believe, later in this volume, there is much more to this story in Tolkien's imagination at this point. It's a major story and a significant part of the story of the Narn, of the of the the Narnikin Hurin, the, the 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 story of the uh, of the children of Hurin. So, that's what he's setting up. 
right? So this is why it's got to be Hur, and this is why Hur is a continual afterthought. He knows Hur is the father of Tuor. He knows Tuor is the father of Eärendil. Eärendil was in the Book of Lost Tales. This, I was going to say, virtually, it's not even virtual. This actually messianic character, right, whose birth is being prophesied and is going to be the um, the blessed one who will, uh, you know, bring deliverance. Um, Lots of messianic overtones to the uh, prediction of the birth of Eärendil from way back at the very, very beginning of his writing these stories. So it's not like the character of Huor is taking him by surprise here, right? So what we're seeing, in other words, is that the other story, the story of Tuor and of Gondolin and Turgon, is interrupting. He set out... Right when Tolkien set out to write the story of the Fens of Serech, he he set out to write Hurin's story, right? Um, an exchange between Hurin and Turgon, which is going to pay off when Hurin is wandering later on and getting ticked off at Turin and feeling uh, neglected, right? Um, but, um, but the story of Gondolin keeps popping up. And interrupting, and the character who are in particular, um, and thereby, of course, the um, the prospect of the character of Tuor, the characters of Tuor and Eärendil. And by the way, this is going to carry on happening. Um, uh, this is going to carry on happening um, in um, uh, in the Turin story as well. Um, that is, two are popping up and interrupting things. But anyway, okay. Um, uh, I didn't read the latter bit. Added subsequently, and Glindur later changed to, and Maeglin, Turgon's sister son, who stood by, heard these words, and marked them well, struck out later, and looked closely at Huor. But said not. Um, okay, so Maeglin's attention... Again, notice this is added subsequently. And what is being added is stuff that's relevant. Stuff that's not going to get paid off in The Wanderings of Hurin. Stuff that's going to get paid off in The Fall of Gondolin. Right? Um, so, in his mind later on, this whole exchange is becoming a setup for a totally different story. Right, as the story of the wanderings of Hurin is already being, um, well, I don't know if it's quite displaced yet, um, but we will we see how the story of uh, of the fall of Gondolin is already um, interfering. Okay, so this is the the sort of emerging prophecy um, from thee and me a new star shall arise. Um, and then there's the dwindling prophecy. Do you remember the Turgon prophecy in the Book of Lost Tales? In the original story of the fall of Gondolin and the later story of the fall of Gondolin in the Quentin Alderinwa. Do you remember the prophecy? 
you remember the message that almost sends to Turgon? The, 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 the message almost sends to Turgon is not run away. It is attack. Attack. Almost says, open the leaguer of Gondolin, march out, and attack Morgoth. And if you do, if you attack Morgoth, I, Ulmo, will rally the rest of the Valar, and we will come and back you up, and Morgoth will be thrown down. You're called, Turgon. If you do this, if you go right now and take the fight to Morgoth, Morgoth will be overthrown. He will come to his final defeat through you and your actions. But if you don't, it's going to get much, much worse, and Gondolin will be destroyed. That's the message that Olmo sends to Turgon in the original story. Okay? Just a little reminder. Now, here we go. This is Morgoth we're talking about at the beginning. But one thought troubled him deeply and marred his triumph. Turgon had escaped the net, whom he most desired to take. For Turgon came of the great house of Fingolfin, and was now by right king of all the Noldor, struck out, and from of old he hated him scarce less than Feanor, and feared him more. For never in Valinor would Turgon greet him, being a friend of Olmo and of Tolkas. And moreover, ere yet darkness overwhelmed him in the blindness of malice, he looked upon Turgon and knew that from him should come, in some time that doom held, the end of all hope. All that gets crossed out. And changed to, For Turgon came of the great house of Fingolfin, and was now by right king of all the Noldor, and Morgoth feared and hated most the house of Fingolfin, because they had scorned him in Valinor, and had the friendship of Olmo, and because of the wounds that Fingolfin gave him in battle. Moreover, of old his eye had lighted on Turgon, and a dark shadow fell on his heart, foreboding that in some time that yet that lay yet hidden in doom, from Turgon ruin should come to him. Okay. So, and that's the one, that latter bit is pretty much what's in the published Silmarillion now. Right? Um... A dark shadow fell on his heart, foreboding that in some time that lay yet hidden in doom, from Turgon ruin should come to him. Um, so, notice the old prophecy. Gone. Well, going, right? I mean, look at the change. He looked upon Turgon and knew that from him should come in some time that doom held the end of all hope. Whoa. It's a little stronger. Um, I've always I've said this many times before when we're when we're, we're talking about the fall of Gondolin. But this passage in the published Silmarillion always puzzled me. 
always puzzled me until I first read the history of Middle-earth because I always felt that the payoff of this line was very disappointing. I mean, okay, yes, Arendel's a big deal. Yes, by taking the, you know, by going into the West and bringing the appeal of, you know, the, 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 you know, telling of the sorrows of elves and men in Middle-earth, um, the Valar are, you know, prompted to declare war and send war into the East and, you know, invade Middle-earth and overthrow Morgoth. It never really seemed to me to pay off this passage in a satisfying way. From Turgon, ruin should come to him. Really indirectly, right? I mean, if you can count his grandson later on, after Gondolin has been destroyed, makes a journey and then is, I mean, like, you know, instrumental in prompting the Valar to... I mean, I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it, right? But um, it did not really seem like a satisfying payoff of the line, from Turgon, ruin should come to him. I mean, you might just as well say, like, why didn't... Uh, I mean, it was his his grandson, right? Why isn't, um, you know, a, you know, darkness, a dark shadow falling on his heart when he sees Huor, right? Um you know what I mean? It's just like, okay. Um, uh, because what we're hearing in this line is still, it's an echo, but it's a fading echo of the old prophecy. His, his writing, the story in his head, is still being informed by the old prophecy in which Turgon is the direct cause of his ruin. Turgon's choice. If Turgon had chosen to attack Morgoth, it would have brought about his ruin. Um, so it's uncertain and conditional. It doesn't actually end up happening, but at least Morgoth is not wrong to perceive that this guy is trouble. This guy's going to come back to haunt me someday. Or at least there's a real good chance this guy's going to come back to haunt me. Um, uh, yeah. Um, I don't even, Tomas, I don't want to get into the Dagor Dagoroth, um, the last battle. Um, mostly because he only wrote about that earlier on. It's done. Um, he's not going back to that here. Um, so let's, let's not complicate that one. Uh, I mean, remember when we saw Morgoth's death being foreboded in Morgoth's ring, he was being decapitated, right? Um, he was being executed. So, um, the idea of Turin killing Morgoth seems to be um, gone-ish, uh, receding over the horizon. Um, 
But anyway. Uh, of course, Turin could be an executioner, Arthur. I'm just saying there's no evidence that he's going to be. Um, that that idea is still being connected to Turin's story. Um, okay. Um, anyhow. Let's look more at the direction. So we can see in this huge strikeout here. Um, uh, we can see in this huge strikeout here. Even within the passage that he strikes out, the old Turgon prophecy is um, already fading. Right. Never in Valinor would Turgon greet him. I love that. Right. Like he cut me at the ball, and so therefore I will never have anything to do with him. Um, never in Valinor would Turgon greet him. He was unfriendly. Stupid antisocial Noldo. Um, being a friend of Olmo and of Tolkis, uh, keeping low company, Turgon was. And moreover, ere yet darkness overwhelmed him in blindness of malice, he looked upon Turgon and knew that from him should come in some time the end of all hope. Um... He, the the primary difference that we see in the passage that struck out, I think anyway, the passage that struck out and the passage with which he replaces it, is the passage that is struck out, is all about Turgon, right? What did Turgon do, to earn uh, Morgoth's particular hatred? Apart from that, he came from the great house of Fingolfin and was now by right the king of all the Noldor. Yeah, but. But let's talk about grievance, okay? Um, but then notice, the second time, he, he it's not about Turgon's actions or Turgon's friends. It just becomes about the House of Fingolfin. And Morgoth feared and hated most the House of Fingolfin because they had scorned him in Valinor. So all of them did. So, so what, he hated Fingon the same amount that he hated Turgon? I guess. Um, did he hate, like, Arithel the same amount that he hated Turgon? She probably ghosted him, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, he seems to be decentralizing the whole thing, pushing the whole thing away from Turgon here. Which makes sense if he's decided that the prophecy, he's just going to consolidate. It's going to be a prophecy about Eärendil, right? I mean, that's where we're headed in the Fens of Serech, right? Um, from thee and from me shall a new star arise, right? That's what's important here. That's what this is all building up to. Arendel is going to be the fulfillment of prophecy. He's going to be the one through whom ruin comes to Morgoth indirectly. But, um, uh, and so Turgon is only... So then the question becomes, that wh why did he keep this at all? Um, it, it feels awkward to me, right? That he's, he's trying to explain why Turgon... Turgon had the particular uh, um, anger of Morgoth. 
because he was the last surviving one of his siblings, all of whom Morgoth hated more or less equally. Um, anyway, we can definitely see the way the wind is blowing here. But Turgon isn't done. So Círdan's just had the havens, his havens sacked. Then Círdan took his remnant by ship, and they sailed to the Isle of Balar, struck out and mingled with Turgon's outpost there, and made a refuge for all that could come thither. For they kept also a foothold at the mouths of Syrian, and there many light swift ships lay hid in the creeks and waters where the reeds were dense as a forest. And seven ships, at Turgon's asking, Círdan sent out into the west, but they never returned. Change two. And when Turgon heard of this, he sent again his messengers to Syrian's mouths, and besought the aid of Círdan the shipwright. And at his bidding, Círdan let build seven swift ships, and they sailed out into the west, and were never heard of again, save one and the last. Now the captain of this ship was Veronwe, and he toiled in the sea for many years, until, returning at last in despair, his ship foundered in a great storm within sight of land, and he alone survived, for Omo saved him from the wrath of Ose, and the waves bore him up and cast him ashore in Nivrost. Okay, so, notice the trend here? We get three different movements within this paragraph. And, um... Notice in each one, Turgon again continues to sort of recede into the background, right? So at first, Turgon has already sent people from Gondolin down the Syrian and have, has established an outpost on the Isle of Balar down at the mouths of Syrian. This was Turgon's idea first. And when Círdan shows up after the havens are sacked, he finds, oh, hey, look. Turgon's people are here already. But Tolkien crosses that out. They sailed to the Isle of Balar. No, there's no outpost, actually. Now, cross out the Turgon's outpost. So, Círdan is making a refuge. So, this is a pure Círdan idea, right? And then we have Turgon asks Círdan to send seven of his ships out into the west. But then we change that again. Um... Two, and when Turgon heard of this, he sent again his messengers to Syrian's mouths and besought the aid of Círdan the shipwright. Again, what is the direction of this change? Once again, it distances Turgon, right? Turgon's not on... Turgon's people aren't on the scene right away anymore, right? But when word reaches him that Círdan has set up a, a, a refuge at the Isle of Balar, now he decides he's going to send people down to ask for help from Círdan. But notice where the, on the first version he um, asks Círdan to send seven of Círdan's own ships. So he only has a few ships that survived the Wreck of the Havens. And Turgon is like, yeah, could you take seven of your last ships and send them off for me, please? Appreciate that. Right? But that he changes that again. So that Turgon now has to come down, uh, metaphorical hat in hand, and ask, beseech the aid, right? He besought the aid of Círdan the shipwright. Um, and, uh, um, and now 
Kirden let build seven swift ships, so we're going to make some special ships for Turgon, right? So the idea that Turgon and Kirden get together and work together on this whole let's send ships into the West project remains, right? Uh, he's not turned away from that. But I think we can again see, I don't want to call it the minimizing of the fall of Gondolin story, but it seems to me certainly a reduction of the significance of Turgon's role again. Even the significance of Gondolin itself is becoming, I think, less and less. Now, we get to the story of Turin. Though, as you'll see, we failed to leave the story of Gondolin behind completely. Um, just as Huor is pretty insistent on not getting left behind, so is his son, apparently. But I found it very striking how the story of Turin is told at the beginning, especially. This, to me, is very remarkable. Compared to what we've seen, the paraphrasing of the Baron and Luthien story, the retelling of the Nirnaith Arnordiad story in the greatest detail that story has ever received in Tolkien's writings. And now, here Turin was a guest at Menegroth in honor for his deeds of valor. But he came from the wild and was unkempt and his gear and garments were wayworn. And Orgoth, who's that, taunted him and the people of Hithlum, why? And in his wrath he smote Orgoth with a cup and slew him at the king's board. Right there, at the table, huh? Then, fearing the anger of Thingol, he fled and became an outlaw in the woods, which woods, and gathered a desperate band of elves and men struck out beyond the girdle of Melian. Okay, so we were going to locate it a little bit here. Here Turin's band captured Beleg and bound him. How did Beleg get involved? But Turin returning released him. Retur wait, tur Turin returning from what? And they renewed their friendship. They were friends? They, well, I mentioned that they were friends, but how, why, I, like, why did it need renewing? And Turin learned of the king's pardon. And so are we, for the first time. Oh, he was pardoned? Wait, he was condemned? We didn't hear, hear either one of those things. We didn't hear about his condemnation or his pardon before that sentence but would not go back to Menegroth. Why not? And remained upon the marches. Okay. And since no foe yet could pass the girdle of Melian, he desired only to take vengeance on the orcs. And he desired only to take vengeance on the orcs. He made a lair in the woods between Syrian and Mindeb in the country of Dimbar. Okay. You see what I mean, right? Like... It would be, if you didn't already know the story of Turin, if this were the only version of the story of Turin that you got, it would be almost impossible even to follow. Right? I mean, he became an outlaw in the woods. An outlaw, like, because Thingols outlawed him? Um, how desperate is his band of elves and men? And, like, what has driven them to desperation? Are they desperate because they're fleeing from Morgoth? That's got to be it, right? I mean, after all, he's... Um, He's desiring only to take vengeance on the orcs, right? It's pretty unclear why Turin's band captured Beleg and bound him, right? I, I, I don't say maybe it looked like an orc or something. I don't know. 
Um, you see what I mean? I mean, like, this is just... The, for the first time, really, I think, in the entire Grey Annals so far, we are getting what sounds to me like an utterly inadequate um, synopsis. That is to say, this section of the narrative all of a sudden does not even seem to be trying to tell the whole story. As if, once more, Tolkien has reverted to making the annals into merely a sketchy synopsis of main happenings in a particular year so as to provide context um, for a, a fuller version of the story. Right. Um, and it's fascinating to me where the momentum of the annals seem to be building towards further and further expression. Oops, sorry. Towards further and further development. Right. And so I was anticipating, right, I mean, it seems like we were building up towards the story of Turin was going to be really long, right? Because um, it's a long story anyway, and we've been getting longer and longer, so, you know, that that um, that makes sense, right? But it's not what we get. Instead, he goes the other way entirely. And especially the front part of the Turin story is extremely, um, extremely sketchy, extremely um, I don't know what not detailed is very insufficient description of it so why has he gone in this direction? What does that tell us about this? It suggests to me that now that he's gotten to this other long story he's already done Baron and Luthien and we saw that he was he was pretty uh he gave a synopsis, but he skipped some bits there too, right? Remember how he skips over the entire song battle between Sauron and Finrod, right? Um, so he was uh, he was being fairly terse, not this terse, but he was being fairly terse in the Baron and Luthien story too. Um, it seems that in those places where, in those two of the great tales, right, where he has already written, like, epic poetry, you know, many, many, you know, thousands of lines of epic poetry. Um, he's aware of the fact that I don't need to retell this whole story in prose right here. Right? That job is going to be done elsewhere. In short, I think that he has gone... He's telling Turin's story as sketchily as he's telling it here, because he's already decided, basically, to write The Children of Turin. Right? Um, he's already decided that he's going to write a fuller sort of standalone story of the children of Hurin. Um, and uh, he's therefore this part of the annals can really just be a very brief kind of um, kind of synopsis. This doesn't have to make sense on its own. This is designed for somebody to read who's already read the story like the fuller version, who's already read The Children of Horan. And so now, okay, fine. Um, yeah, yeah, I can follow, which I remember those events, right? Um, but it would have no power to move you or even really to convey what was important about the story if you didn't have that. Um, now, we, um, uh, 
we still do not have memes involvement. In this year, Gwyndor Gwilin's son escaped from Angband. Blodren Ban's son was an Easterling, and being taken by Morgoth and tormented because he was one of the faithful that withstood Uldor, entered the service of Morgoth and was released, and sent in search of Turin. And he entered the hidden company in Dimbar, and served Turin manfully for two years. But seeing now his chance, he betrayed the refuge of Beleg and Turin to the orcs, as his errand was. Thus it was surrounded and taken, and Turin was captured alive and carried towards Angband. But Beleg was left for dead among the slain. Blodren was slain by a chance arrow in the dark. Penciled against this anno. What happened to the dragon helm? He has a hard time keeping track of the dragon helm throughout this sequence. Um, now, the story of Blodren Ban's son, which was originally, as I recall, Blodren Bor's son, you may recall uh, because we got this earlier on. This is the story that's in all of the earlier versions. I say all the earlier versions. I think it's in the Book of Lost Tales version of Turambar as well. Um, I know it's in the poem, The Children of Hurin, The Iterative Children of Hurin, uh, from the Ways of Beleriand. I know it's in the Quentin Olderinwa from The Shaping of Middle-Earth. So in all of the earlier versions of the story, it is still Blodrin, son of Bor, which has been changed to Blodrin, son of Ban, um, here. There are two things that have changed um, about the betrayal. One very interesting, and one even more interesting, but much more nerdy and obscure. The, um, the first one is that he did not have the story before of the humans who remained faithful. Remember, there were the people of Bor and the people of, of Ulthast, and the people of Ulthast betrayed them, but the people of Bor remained faithful, right? So the fact that in, in all of the earlier versions, Blodren, son of Bor, was simply one of the Easterlings. He was just an evil dude. He was, he was Morgoth's mole from the beginning, right? And so he was just seeking his opportunity and then finally, you know, pulls the trigger and betrays Turin. Here, we get an element of tragedy added to Blodren's story, where Blodren himself was taken by Morgoth and captured and tortured by Morgoth because he was one of the faithful. So he... He and his family were of those faithful men who did not betray Mydrals. And he is captured and tortured until he is broken and enters the service of Morgoth and is released and betrays Turin. So that his ultimate service of Morgoth in betraying Turin and his band is the fulfillment of the tragedy of his own story. So that's the way in which this story has been um, uh, the way that his story has been taken deepened. I mean, it's been it's given this really sad, tragic dimension. That's new. I'm pretty sure that's new this time. I don't recall that uh, from earlier on. Here's the thing that is also interesting, but much more obscure and nerdy. I was fascinated by his choice to change Blodren's father's name from Bor to Ban. Um, 
I don't want to make too much of this because this association might be just me. But um, if um, if you remember your Sir Thomas Mallory, King Arthur, at the beginning of his reign, goes to find allies. Merlin tells him where to go, like he always does. Merlin tells him where to go to find allies. And he goes to find the two brothers, whose name, whose names are King Ban and King Bors. And King Ban is the father of Lancelot. Um, and King Bors is the father of, wait for it, Sir Bors. Um, I am sure, no, I'm not sure. I think it very likely that there is some kind of uh, philological reason behind this shift. Perhaps. But I can't, I can't not notice that. And I know that Tolkien loved Mallory. Um, I, that shift, it's not Boar's, it's just Boar, singular Boar, B-O-R. Um, but that shift from Boar to Ban, um, and telling the story about Ban's son, who again is Lancelot, the main character of the entire story. Um, uh, and makes him this tragic figure who ends up is like loyal but ends up betraying the you know the side that he was loyal to um, and bringing about you know the destruction of the company I'm just saying it's a it's a, it's a it was to me a totally unexpected Arthurian overlay in this moment that I'm not 100% convinced is legitimately there and I don't quite know what to do with but darn if I don't find it kind of interesting um, so anyway just wanted to point that out uh, maybe somebody smarter than I will find um, a network of uh, passages or references um, particularly in how Tolkien deals with Arthurian stuff that makes that um, uh makes that make sense a little bit more. But anyway. Okay. Um, yes, Fanaro's Pizza, I agree. He says, um, Tolkien asking himself about the dragon helm. Not for the last time. Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, however, although he begins the story of Turin Turambar in very brief and sketchy mode, um, like the barest of summaries that you can't even really follow the plot of perfectly well if you don't already know the story. Look what happens by the time we get to the fall of, uh, of Nargothrond. And now he stood alone, for the few that had followed him had fled into hiding. But behold, in that moment, Glaurung the Fell issued from the gaping doors of Felagund and lay behind, between Turin and the bridge. Then suddenly he spoke by the evil spirit that was in him, saying, Hail, son of Urin, well met. 
Then Turin sprang about and strode against him, and fire was in his eyes, and the edges of Gorthang shone as with flame. But Glaurung withheld his blast, and opened wide his serpent eyes, and gazed upon Turin. And without fear Turin looked in those eyes as he raised up his sword, and lo! Straightway he fell under the dreadful spell of the dragon, and was as one turned to stone. Thus long they stood on moving, silent before the great doors of Felagund. Then Glaurung spoke again, taunting Turin, penciled against this paragraph. For while he wore the dragon helm of Galligan, he was proof against the glance of Glaurung. Then the worm perceiving this, and then he goes on. Um, whew, hear that? Feel the momentum of these paragraphs, the rhetoric of these paragraphs? Look at all those beholds and lows, right? Um, it's like uh, it's like the battle between Eowyn and the Witch King, um, or like the charge of I mean, we 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 saw before a charge with uh, passages like the charge of Theoden. Um, oh man, I mean, this is about the opposite end of the spectrum from those sketchy, unfollowable synopses we were getting at the very beginning of the Turin story, right? Once again, Tolkien has predictably gotten totally carried away in telling the story of Turin and Glaurung here. Um, yeah. Van Ars Pizza, I agree. I love that line, too. Glaurung withheld his blast and opened wide his serpent eyes and gazed upon Turin. Um, it's like the phrase serpent eyes. Um, which is conveying something, and it's like a particular kind of eye. Um, that's why it's hyphenated, right? Um, it's a it's a it's a single concept. He's not a serpent, but he has serpent eyes, which I think means, I think it we're it that's bringing in, I suspect, um, uh, even biblical baggage here. Um, you know, the eyes of a deceiver. But. Um, Anyhow, yeah, so cool. Um, it's always fun when Tolkien gets completely carried away, but it also shows, certainly, that his desire or attempt to keep this story short, you know, this version, just the annals version, a really quick synopsis, knowing that he's going to expand this later on is failing. And he is... Um, we're getting a lot of this content. Of course, you will have recognized most of these two paragraphs from the published Silmarillion. Um, Christopher wisely included these awesome paragraphs um, in the published Silmarillion. Um, uh, except for the considerations about the dragon helm of Dorloman. Um, but, um, yeah, anyhow, this is, uh, uh, this is, this is so much fun. But once again, once he gets into it again, he can't help himself just like his, just like his, um, his plot outlines in the exploring the Lord of the Rings manuscripts, right? Uh, once he starts sketching out the story, as he was doing with the Turin story, right, just to kind of mark time 
and then continue through knowing he's going to do the turn story justice later on. Um, he is still discovering new things and new scenes and new, um, new lines are, uh, new lines of dialogue, right? Are like the, the, the characters start acting and talking and, and he gets swept away. And I love, um, seeing him, uh, I love seeing him get swept away like this. So much fun. Um, okay. Um, let's look at two different passages on Brado's Hall. Compare and contrast again. So this is going to be over two slides. Okay. Version one. Thus he came through the passes into Dorloman. And even as winter fell with snow from the north, he found again the land of his childhood. Bare was it, and bleak, and Morwen was gone. Empty stood her house, broken and cold. It was more than a year since she departed to Doriath. Broda the Easterling, who had wedded Morwen's kinswoman, Iron, had plundered her house and taken all that was left of her goods. Then Turin's eyes were opened, and the spell of Glaurung was broken, and he knew the lies wherewith he had been cheated. And in his anguish and his wrath for the evils that his mother had suffered, he slew Broda in his own hall and fled then out into the winter, a hunted man. Okay? Version 1. Version 2. Thus he came hardly by the passes of Dorloman, through bitter snows from the north, and found again the land of his childhood. Bare was it, and bleak, and Morwen was gone. Empty stood her house, broken and cold, and no living thing now dwelt nigh. It so befell that Turin came then to the hall of Brada the incomer, and learned of an old servant of Hurin that Brada had taken to wife by force Iren, Hurin's kinswoman, and had oppressed Morwen, and thereafter, in the year before she had fled with Neonor, none but Iren knew whither. Then Turin strode to Brada's table, and with threats learned from Iren that Morwen went to Doriath to seek her son. For, said Iron, the lands were freed then from evil by the black sword of the south, who now hath fallen, they say. Then Turin's eyes were opened, and the last shreds of Glaurung's spell left him, and for anguish and wrath at the lies that had deluded him, and hatred of the oppressors of Morwen, a black rage seized him, and he slew Broda in his hall, and other Easterlings that were his guests, and then he fled out into the winter, a hunted man. So the first and most obvious uh, difference between these two takes on Turin in Broda's Hall is that um, the first one is much shorter, right? Um, he's expanding. And this shouldn't surprise us after the dragon passage we were just looking at, right? Um as he goes deeper, and not only as he goes further and further along into the annals describing Turin, um, but as he revises passages that he already wrote, as in this case, right, we're getting much more richness of detail. Notice how even at the beginning there, it's a really fun comparison. Thus he came through the passes into Dorloman, and even as winter fell with snow from the north, he found again the land of his childhood, right? becomes, thus he came hardly by the passes of Dorloman through bitter snows from the north, and found again 
the land of his childhood. Right? Uh, not a big change. Notice the change? Through bitter snows from the north. Um, the bitterness of the snow is the change. Seems a really small change, right? But it has a big difference in the how present it feels to us. Thus he came through the passes into Dorloman, and even as winter fell with snow from the north, he found again the land of his childhood. Very matter-of-fact, very synopsis-like, right? No immediacy of sensation. I mean, even as winter fell with snow from the north is it, sort of... But that's just talking about the timing, right? Um, uh but through bitter stores, uh, snows from the north is now suddenly inviting us to put ourselves in Turin's place and imagine the bitterness of the cold, right? Now all of a sudden we're like, just with that one word, with that one image, right? We're now, you know, like bending down and straining against the wind as we go to the north, into the teeth of the north wind, which is blowing the bitter snows. Um, a small change, but it really shows a difference in uh, sort of the attitude and the approach of the whole thing. Yes, Feanor, I like that one. The um, And in his anguish, um, he slew Broda, right? We get um, a black rage seized him, and he slew Broda in his hall, right? Um, and look at the anger. Um, for anguish and wrath at the... Lo so the first time, in his anguish and his wrath for the evils that his mother had suffered... He slew Brada in his own hall, right? Brada totally had it coming. He was feeling anguish, presumably about the lies that were just broken. So, you know, he's distraught, he's upset, and ticked off uh, that Brada was oppressing his mom, right? So he slew Brada in his own hall. Um, and now we get, notice the, notice the, the momentum of this sentence. Um, all one sentence here. Then Turin's eyes were opened, and the last shreds of Glaurung's spell left him. The last, this, as opposed to, and the spell of Glaurung was broken. Very matter of fact, right? And the last shreds of Glaurung's spell left him, and for anguish and wrath at the lies that had deluded him, and hatred of the oppressors of Morwen, a black rage seized him, and he slew Brada in his hall, and other Easterlings that were his guests, and then he fled out into the winter, a hunted man. Um, I know I just noticed a fun thing. Apart from the fact that um, this is two sentences, and it's only—it's not only longer, but it's all one sentence uh, in the second version. Um, look at the subjects and verbs, main subjects and verbs. Then Turin's eyes were opened. So, eyes were opened, and the spell of Glaurung was broken, and he knew the lies wherewith he had been cheated. All simple sentences. And in his anguish, now we have at least a prepositional phrase, and his wrath, he slew Brada. Right? So, in that second sentence in particular is where I want to focus here. We get a little build-up. In his anguish and his wrath for the evils that his mother had suffered, he slew Brada. So he slew is the subject and verb. What's the subject and verb? What's the main subject and verb of this sentence? Paragraph 296 here. 
we get Turin's eyes were open at the beginning. That's one independent clause. Then we get another one. The last shreds of Glaurung's spell left him. But now, after that, there are three independent clauses linked together. What a what are the, what's what's the what's the next main verb? Starting with N for anguish. Yes, seized, Chad, exactly. The black a black rage seized him. That's the subject and verb, right? Um so much more interesting than he slew, right? A black rage seized him. And he slew Brada in his hall, right? We get a new clause for that. Um, love that. Love anyway, you see how much how much richer, how much more emotional, how much like again, there's much more it seems inadequate to say much more rhetoric, like that doesn't sound impressive. But do you see what I mean? Um the cadences of these sentences are calculated very differently. So much less matter of fact all the way through. Even, you know, in things like um, uh, when when does he go? Let's see. Um, uh, Broad of the Easterling had plundered her house. Oh. We never even get him entering. He just kind of ends up in Broda's Hall somehow. He's looking at Morrowind's Hall and it's empty. Then we get the mere statement, Broda the Easterling had plundered her house. And then, we don't even know when exactly. When he gets to Morrowind's house, his eyes were opened and the spell was broken. Whereas here we get the Turin strode to Broda's table and with threats learned, right? And then we get the 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 line from Iron about the black sword of the south, you know, freed the lands from evil and enabled his mother to escape. And that's the moment, right? It's the irony. Um, you know, it's uh, revelation by irony, right? As Glaurung told him that he would be despised by everyone if he abandoned his mother and sister, right? If he failed them, uh, then he would be accursed forever. And Iron tells him, oh yeah, that black sword of the south, he saved them. Right? They, they're they still alive and they escaped and are okay thanks to the black sword of the south. Um, the fact that not only was it not true, not only did Glaurung lie to him, um, the way that Glaurung inverts and twists the truth, it's that realization um, that um, that makes that breaks the spell, that um, makes the last shreds of Glaurung's spell to leave him. Um, in other words, we can really see how this story is taking shape in new ways, right? He's um, he's not resisting so hard anymore. Even, even, I think, in take one here, we can still see like the, the remnants of some intention to be brief in his synopsis here. And uh, he's giving rein to himself a little bit more here as we uh, as we move forward. Um, yeah. <laughs> hey, Druid's Fire, chat arrives just when he means to. 
It's all good. Besides, it's fine. He'll just listen to the rest of class later on at like 3.5x or something like that and catch up in five minutes. Um, but, um, okay, uh, Everett's question, we're just about done here. Um, this might be too macro of a question, but what is Tolkien's intent for the... Yeah, exactly. That's what we're trying to figure out, Everett. Um, what... He seems to have entered this with the intention. Remember, this is still the early 50s, right? So we're talking about the time period in which right after the Lord of the Rings, he is trying to whip together the Silmarillion for publication because he is making a strong, indeed even in some sense, a strong arm pitch to have the Silmarillion published alongside, um, at least he was trying to strong arm Alan Unwin to a certain extent to publish the Silmarillion alongside the Lord of the Rings. So yes, definitely preparing for publication. And it seems that, at least in its initial concept, the annals are supposed to be a separate thing, you know, keeping track of the years, keeping, you know, helping you be able to sort out the plot, the, you know, the primary thread and shape of the, the plot, set out in annal form, while the Quinta tells more of the story. But exactly what we keep seeing, Everett, is that 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 resolution seems to be evading him uh, to some extent. And watching what the annals are growing into as he's writing them is one of the things that I'm finding so fascinating here and really wondering. Um, now, spoiler, we're never going to find out the answer to this question fully because... Um, but it seems like the annals are growing into something which really is going to make the Quenta superfluous, potentially. Um, so that essentially those two things are no longer really going to be doing separate things, but are but would likely, I think, maybe have been combined. Um, but again, we don't know because the whole Publish the Silmarillion project gets called off. Um, and he doesn't get so far as that. But, um, anyway, anyway. Um, yeah, so it's definitely not private fun yet. It might get closer to private fun later on, but I think we're not there yet. All right. Um, we actually came pretty close to the end here. Um, a couple, I have a, a couple passages I want to finish up. So I was having a little trouble figuring out what to do because, of course, there's all of um, the commentary material, but I don't think I'm going to be talking about the commentary in enormously great detail uh, going through. There will be a few things that I'll want to come back to, I think. Um and there are some of those, some his notes, Christopher's notes, at the end of the commentary. So the very last pages of the Grey Annals section that I want to pay a little bit more attention to. So um, I do want you to look at that. But I'm not 100% positive that that's going to give us enough material to talk about for next time. So here's what we should do. Look through the commentary. Pay special attention to the notes at the end of the commentary. But then... Read through. Read through as well. What it what is labeled section ten, of, 
the next the next section is the later Quenta Silmarillion. So Wintok is going to go back to the Quenta again, so we'll be able to look at that. And it's going to begin here with what Christopher is labeling Chapter 9 of Men. And then, very briefly, that's very brief, of course, and then we'll get Chapter 10, The Siege of Angband. Um, and then it goes to Chapter 11 of Beleriand and its realms. But let's not do that one yet. So stop at, it's on page 180 of the hardcover text here. Um, stop before chapter 11 of Beleriand and its realms. And uh, we'll see if we can wrap up the final business with the commentaries and everything. Um, um, any no I'll bring in any notes from Christopher that I particularly want to talk about from his, uh, his, his end notes uh, and his final notes there uh, on the Grey Annals. But I am confident that we will finish the Grey Annals next time and then maybe begin to glance at the Quentin material after that. All right? So that's the plan for next week. I do plan and hope to be able to be here next Wednesday evening. Um, so I look forward to joining you guys again. Thank you very much uh, for uh, joining me on this really fun journey. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.